passage this morning is Psalm 24. So take a Bible out, pull your tablet or your phone or borrow something from your neighbor, but find Psalm 24. You can also take the outline that is in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along with those notes. Psalm 24 is the third part of the trilogy of the shepherd, and so this is part three of three. There's three passages in the New Testament that describe Jesus as our shepherd. Those passages are John 10, Hebrews 13, and 1 Peter 5. And it's interesting that they correspond with Psalm 22, 23, and 24. Most of us know Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You've memorized that, you've recited it, you've heard it at funerals, uh, you've read it, you've studied it. But Psalm 22 on the front side and Psalm 24 on the back side go with it. And they describe the same picture of our good shepherd. And so Psalm 22 and John 10 talk about the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And then Psalm 23 and Hebrews 13 talk about the good shepherd who provides for his sheep. Everything that we need, he provides for us. And then this morning we're going to look at Psalm 24. It goes with 1 Peter 5 and they both describe the return of our shepherd. And so that's our focus this morning. If you look at the text, I just want you to notice something in your Bible. If you look between verse 2 and verse 3, you probably see a little white space, a little extra line with no text. And then if you look between verse 6 and 7, you probably see the same thing. That's the editors of this English translation that I have or that you have telling you that this psalm has three stanzas or three sections. And the sections uh, go like this. The first section contains praise to the Lord. The second section is an example of entrance liturgy. And that phrase or that term may sound familiar to you. A few weeks back, we looked at Psalm 15, and I told you Psalm 15 is an example of entrance liturgy. In fact, some of the phrasing between Psalm 15 and Psalm 24 is actually very similar. And the idea is, when you look at, uh, at the beginning of this section in verse 3, who will ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can come into God's presence? Who can enter this holy place to worship the Lord? Who can enter into this way into worship? And so the middle section talks about that, asks that question and answers it. And then the third section contains a messianic prophecy. Here's what's interesting. As I started reading commentaries this week, I have about 10 that I work through in the book of Psalms and I look at the particular passage and read what this one has to say and that one has to say. And they come from different perspectives. I was surprised how many of them, good commentaries, good Bible teachers said This is sort of a a hodgepodge psalm. They looked at these three sections and they said, it's kind of like three different parts of songs just got mashed together. And some of the guys just sort of threw their hands in the air and said, these three sections really don't have anything to do with each other. They don't really fit together. They just all sort of got mashed into the same psalm. I couldn't disagree more. I think they all three fit together. When you think about the historical context that led up to Psalm 24, and you think about the the forward-looking orientation of Psalm 24, I think they all fit together perfectly, and I hope we can make sense of that this morning. Here's what you need to know to put them all together. Many scholars believe David wrote this psalm when he finally brought the ark, that's the ark of the covenant, into Jerusalem. We're going to look at these verses in just a minute. I want to make sure that you know the story. 
When we talked about Psalm 15, we went over a few of these things. So some of you, if you were here, you may remember bits and pieces of this story. Some of you know this story already. Some of you maybe have never heard this story in your entire life. But I want to make sure we're all on the same page about what was going on when David wrote Psalm 24. When God brought his people out of Egypt, he gave them instructions. And put this picture up for me. He gave them instructions about how to build an elaborate tent This tent was to be pitched in the very middle of the camp, and at the very middle of this tent, they called it a tabernacle, there was this object. We call it the Ark of the Covenant, or just the Ark for short. And this was a symbol for Israel in the most holy place of worship, in the middle of the camp, in the middle of the tent. This is where God said, I will sit on this throne, as it were, between these two cherubim, that are touching. Now, to be honest with you, we don't know exactly what this looked like. This is one reproduction of looking at the instructions in the Old Testament and piecing it together. You can look online and find other examples that look slightly different, but you get the basic idea. It was a gold box made of wood, covered in gold. It was not very big. And uh, I remember as a child, I remember thinking this was some huge, massive, like coffin thing. No, it was just a little small box had these poles and they carried these poles. And this was a picture for the people that God was with them. This is where God would dwell with his people in the most holy place. When you get to the book of Joshua and the people are fighting for the land that God has promised them, an interesting thing happens. God tells his people to carry this ark into battle with them. You got four guys, priests, carrying this ark in the middle of a battlefield. It's not strategically wise, but God was saying to his people, you carry this thing out, and it's a picture, it's a symbol, it's a reminder for everybody in the army to know the Lord is with us. We are not fighting these battles on our own, but the Lord is with us, and he's fighting with us, and he's fighting for us, and so they would carry this thing into battle. You move past the book of Joshua and you get to the book of Judges and it's a dark time in Israel. There's no king in Israel and these judges are ruling and a terrible thing happens during this time period. In a battle, the Philistines defeat Israel and they capture this ark. There's no king to go get it back to lead an army, but the Philistines take it and they take it and they decide sort of as a spoil of war, they're gonna set it up in the temple of their high god, Dagon. So they go into Dagon's temple. There's this giant statue of Dagon in there, and they put this ark at Dagon's feet as a picture for all of the Philistines to see that the Lord bows at the feet of Dagon. And they leave it there, and they think it's cute, and they think it's funny. What's funny is they come in the next morning, and the statue of Dagon is laying on its face in front of the ark. And they say, well, maybe the air conditioner vents came on and blew the thing over. I don't know. I don't know. So they prop him back up and they set him up and they do their Dagon worship, whatever they do. And they come back the next morning and down he is again. This time with his head and his hands knocked off. And they sort of look around at each other and say, we should probably move the ark. Let's not leave it here anymore. This looks bad. This, we don't want this to get out that our high God is bowing down before this ark. So what do you want to do with it? And you can imagine, like most committee meetings, somebody says something really stupid, but everyone else is too afraid to say that was a really dumb idea. Somebody pipes up in this committee meeting and says, let's put it on a cart and let's just send it, let's send it to a different town. Get it out of this town, send it to those guys. 
So put the thing on a cart, send it to the next town. It gets to the next town. Everything's great for a while until everyone in town starts to get cancer. It just, there's an outbreak of tumors in this town. And the people in that town have a committee meeting and somebody says, this is a no-brainer. Send it to the next town. So they send it to the next town. Everybody in that town gets cancer, tumor, outbreak. Everybody's sick. They start passing it around. And eventually somebody in Philistia says, how about we get rid of the thing? Let's just send it back. Put the thing on a cart. Nobody wanted to touch it, you can imagine. Nobody wanted to get close to it. Said, put it on a cart, hook it up to an oxen, beat that oxen on the backside, and just let it go. So they did it. So one day, life is as normal in Israel without the ark, and here comes an oxen over the horizon pulling a cart, and the ark's on the back of it. And they've heard what's been going on. They know made Dagon fall down, everybody got cancer. And so on the one hand, Israel's really excited to get the ark back, right? This is the the most holy object in their process of worship. This is the place where God's spirit dwells. On the other hand, they're absolutely terrified. The last time they had it, they lost a battle. And the last people that had it had giant stone statues falling down and people getting cancer. And so this is what they decide to do. Look at this verse, 1 Samuel 7.1. The men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and they brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. You're saying, who's Abinadab? I have no idea. This is another one of those committee meeting decisions. What do we do with the thing? We don't want it. We don't want it. Put it in Abinadab's living room. Just leave it with this guy. So that's what they do. They take the most holy object in Israel and they leave it in this guy's living room. And it's, it's there. It's just in his house. And some time goes by and Israel gets a king and his name is Saul and he's not a very good king and he dies. And Israel gets another king, the second king of Israel. His name is David and he's a pretty good king. And this King David, as he sort of fought all of his battles and he has some time to think and reflect, he says, you know, we should not leave the most holy thing in Israel in Abinadab's living room. We should bring that to the capital. We should bring that to Jerusalem. And so this is what happens. A few chapters later, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and he went with all the people who were there with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah... And Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with songs, lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. And we'll stop right there. You get up to this verse and you say, this sounds like a pretty good deal. They have a big parade going, 30,000 people are invited. They've got the ark. They want to bring it back. They know it's this holy object. They don't want it hanging out in Abinadab's living room anymore. So they're going to bring it back. This sounds like a great thing, except it wasn't. God had told his people very plainly. This is not confusing. There's some things in the Bible that are hard to understand. This is not one of them. God told the people, the only clan, the only tribe that can carry the ark is the Levites. That's it. Nobody else carries it. And you don't put it on a cart 
You use the poles that go down the side through the rings and four Levites get on every corner and you carry this thing. That's how God wanted it to be done. How do they do it? They do it like the Philistines do it. They just load it up on a cart and off they go. And so this is what happens next. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and he took hold of it For the oxen stumbled, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Can you picture this in your mind? There's this big celebration coming into town down Main Street, 30,000 people, everyone's excited. Ark is on a brand new cart, the nicest cart in Israel. And the oxen stumble and the thing starts to go. And this guy, Uzzah, whose dad has had the ark in his living room for the last however long, does what probably any one of us would have done, and he just reaches up his hand and he touches the one thing in Israel that God said was never to be touched. And the text says God reaches out his hand and kills Uzzah. And we read it not knowing the rest of the story and the other instructions that God gave the people, and we say it looks like God just had a temper tantrum. looks like you just blew your cool. Well, no, this was really strike three. You're not supposed to carry it because you're not a Levite. And you're not supposed to put it on a cart. You're supposed to carry it with the poles. God was patient with them through all of this. But then when he touched the one thing that they weren't supposed to touch, God said, that's it. Strike three, and he killed this guy. Here's what's interesting. David, who's in charge of the whole thing, says what? Don't bring it in here. Last time we had it, we lost a battle. Then the statue kept falling down. Then everybody got cancer everywhere it went, and now God's killed Uzzah. And the text says that David was angry with the Lord. He did not like the fact that God burst out and killed Uzzah for his disobedience. So here's another one of these sort of strange decisions. He says, take it to Obed-Edom's house. Just leave it there. Just take it to him. I don't want it. Leave it here. It stays there for three months. And the Lord blesses this guy. And God is trying to get David's attention. David, you need to come to your senses here. David finally comes to his senses, which we'll talk about more in a minute. And he brings the ark into Jerusalem a second time. And this time they do it right. They get the Levites together. They don't put it on a cart. They use the poles. They carry it in, and everything goes fantastic. But listen, Bible scholars are telling you, and they're telling me, when David is getting ready to bring the ark For the second time, when they really get it in, after everything that happened with Uzzah, that's when he writes Psalm 24. So you keep that story in mind, and I want you to follow along as we read the text. Psalm 24, verse 1. A psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? 
And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Let's pray together. Father, help us this morning to come to this place passage with an appropriate humility. Help us to see ourselves for who we are and help us to see you as you are. Help us to understand what this passage is teaching us about our shepherd. We pray for wisdom and for understanding and we pray for soft hearts to receive your word today and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Very simple. Three sections in Psalm 24, three ideas I want you to see, and then one summary truth at the end. All about the good shepherd. Number one, the shepherd, the good shepherd is the creator and the owner of everything. He made it and he owns it. You may see those answers and fill in those blanks and say, that's pretty elementary, that's pretty basic. Do I really need to remember this? And the answer is yes, you really do need to remember this. Because David forgot it. And if you are anything like David or you're anything like me, you have a tendency to forget it. You remember David, he brings this ark in. The Levites aren't carrying it. They got it on a cart, not using poles. And Uzzah reaches out and touches it, and he dies. And David is angry with God. We've talked about this idea the last few weeks, but it's it's present in this passage as well in the backstory. What David is basically saying is, I'll worship the Lord as long as he is the kind of God that I want him to be. And he does the kinds of things that I want him to do. But if he steps outside of the little box that I've drawn for him, I'm going to throw a temper tantrum and I really don't want anything to do with worshiping him. Don't bring the ark into my city. You keep it out of here. This is the person who says, I don't know that I could worship a God who fill in the blank. Well, I don't know if I could ever serve a God who fill in the blank. This is the person who is saying, when they use those words, they're saying, I want to create a God and worship a God that suits my expectations and does what I want him to do and fits inside of the box that I have for him to fit inside of. And if he doesn't fit inside that box, I don't want anything to do with him. And I hope, we've talked about this several weeks now, I hope it's starting to really sink in deep. You see the folly of that sort of mentality. How foolish it is to say, I will only worship the Lord, I'll only have a good attitude about serving the Lord if he does what I want him to do and if he acts the way I want him to act. I hope you see the folly of the creature saying to the creator, you need to conform to my expectations. 
or I'm going to sulk and pout and not have anything to do with you. It's foolishness. It's foolish when we do it, and it was foolish when David did it. When he says, we read in the text, he was angry with the Lord, you say, why? Well, David would say, because I don't like what he did. Well, he's not asking you if you liked it. He's not asking you for permission. He's not taking public opinion polls. Is this going to go over well with the folks or not go over well with the folks? Is this going to help my approval rating or hurt my approval rating? He's God. And eventually David got that through his brain. You know how we know he got it through his brain? Psalm 24. Before he gets to the entrance liturgy, the part about who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, he stops and he says, Let's just have a reset and let's just remind ourselves who's God in this situation and who's not God. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. He founded it and he established it. He's the creator. It's all his. The ark, me, Uzzah, all of us. And he can do whatever he wants to do and I am in no position to tell him what to do or not to do. So he just hits this reset button and he's saying the shepherd is the creator and the shepherd is the owner of everything. For you and me, the reminder as we leave this morning, even as we worship here this morning, is to say our expectations do nothing to change who God is or what he does. Nothing. That's not the place of the creature. He's the creator. Our attitude towards worship should in no way be affected toward what God does or doesn't do. If he's God, he deserves our worship. That's the end of it. That's the end of it. And so David is saying he's the creator and he's the owner of everything. Here's the second thing you need to see from the middle section. Those who would worship the good shepherd must be holy. It's a problem for us. It's a problem for me and it's a problem for you. There's a turn between verse two and three, David begins by focusing on God and then he sort of turns to focus on us. Who can come to worship this God? Verse three, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in the holy place? Answer, verse four, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart. You understand, he's not saying God got mad at us because he had physically dirty hands and he touched it. Because it's not just a matter of clean hands, it's also a matter of a pure heart. What David is saying is, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? One who's holy. One who's not guilty of sin with their hands. Not guilty of sin with their mouth. Not guilty of sin with their heart or their mind. Somebody who's holy can come into God's presence. You listen to that, and I hope you feel a little bit uneasy. When I say the only people who can worship the good shepherd are those who are holy, I hope you say to yourself, why am I here this morning then? What business do I have being here? Because here's the the reality. This is an Old Testament truth and a New Testament truth. It's just a biblical truth. We're not holy. We're not. Look at these Old Testament passages that describe us. Isaiah 64, 6. We have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. It's not very flattering, is it? Isaiah says, you're dirty 
when you come before God because of your sin. Look what Jeremiah says. The heart, your heart, my heart, our hearts, they're deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jeremiah 17, 9. You gotta get this through your brain and I gotta get it through my brain. When we think about coming to worship the creator and owner of everything, the only people that can come into his presence are holy people and we're not holy. This afternoon, I want you to read all of Hebrews 9 and 10. We don't have time to read it all this morning, but we're going to read a few verses. Hebrews 9 and 10. You read the rest later. Here's some good news for unholy people like us. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. These sacrifices can never take away sins. But when Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Here it is. By a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Or, if you want to translate the end of that verse literally, he has perfected for all time those who are being made holy. What the book of Hebrews is saying is, look, on your own merits... You cannot come before the Lord in worship. You cannot ascend this hill. You cannot come to worship him or serve him. You're dirty. You're unclean. Your heart is wicked. It's deceitful. You can't come. The text says right here that you can't lift up your soul to what is false. You can't swear deceitfully. And Jeremiah says your heart is deceitful. You can't go. And the book of Hebrews says through Jesus you can go. Through the one who offered himself as a sacrifice for your sin, you're welcome to come. And through that single sacrifice, as amazing as it is to try to wrap your mind around, by a single sacrifice, he has perfected for all time the ones who are being sanctified, the ones who are being made holy. Who can come to worship the shepherd? The ones who are being sanctified and being made holy and being perfected because of their faith in him. Those are the only ones. God's the creator. Only those who are being made holy can come. Number three, the good shepherd is the king of glory. He's the king of glory. Five times in this psalm at the end, David calls the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. He calls Yahweh the king of glory. This is the one who laid down his life for his people, is the one who provides for his people. And it reminds us here at the end that we're talking about Jesus, and that's the last point on your outline. Psalm 24 points us to the return of the King of glory. I want to just share a few passages with you, talk about a few passages as we wrap this up that give us this hope that our King is returning, our Shepherd is returning. You remember in the New Testament, Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. Do you remember that story? And then immediately after the baptism, he goes out into the wilderness and he's tempted by Satan. Immediately after that, he comes back from the wilderness and he, he starts preaching. And we read this in Mark chapter 1. This is the first thing that Jesus started preaching. After his baptism, after the temptation, this is what he said. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The kingdom of God is here. And every Jew who heard Jesus say that, 
every last one of them in Israel who heard Jesus say the kingdom of God is at hand, they understood exactly what Jesus was saying. He was saying, I'm the king. The king is here. Because the king is here, the kingdom is here. That's why they got so mad at him. That's why they accused him of blasphemy. That's why they wanted to murder him. So he starts preaching, the king has come. The kingdom is here. Fast forward a few years. You remember when Jesus, on a Sunday afternoon, rode a donkey into the city of Jerusalem? We call that the triumphal entry. We celebrate that or we remember that today on Palm Sunday. You remember that story? Jesus is riding in. He's on this donkey. And there's all these people all around him. And the crowds are singing, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Did you know they weren't the only ones singing as Jesus rode that donkey into Jerusalem? You go back and you look at rabbinical Uh, writings and teachings about how the Jews structured their worship services in the temple. Did you know that on the very Sunday when Jesus rode that donkey into Jerusalem, the crowds outside, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The priests on that very day, according to Jewish liturgy, rabbinical sources, the priests are in the temple singing a song. Take a wild guess what song they're singing. Psalm 24. Jesus is riding the donkey into the city through the gates. And the crowds are saying, Hosanna, save us. Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the son of David. And across town in the temple, as he rides in, the priests are singing. The very same priests who are going to murder him in just a few days. They're singing a song. This is what they're singing. Are you ready? Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who's the king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. You don't think God has a sense of humor to orchestrate the events of history so that at the very moment when Jesus of Nazareth is riding a donkey up into the city of Jerusalem, the city of David, and the crowds are singing, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The priests who are about to murder Jesus are in the temple singing, let the king come into the city. Pay attention, gates, open up doors. The king is riding in. The Lord, he's strong and mighty. He's mighty in battle. He is the king of glory. And of course, in their minds, they're thinking about David bringing the ark into Jerusalem, the throne of God. They're thinking about the Lord. They don't even understand they're singing about the one that they're about to murder. And they murder him. And he dies as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Hunter talked about that two weeks ago. Psalm 22, John 10. They murder him in cold blood. And from a human perspective, it's a tragedy, but from the divine perspective, we understand that the good shepherd says, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority from the Father. I can lay it down and I can take it up. No one takes my life from me. I am laying it down for the sheep. Why? Hebrews 9 and 10, to make them holy, to sanctify them. 
Because if I don't do this, they can't ascend the hill of the Lord to worship. So I'm making them fit for worship and I'm laying down my life and I'm gonna take it back up again. And he did. He took it back up again. He rose from the grave three days later. And the story doesn't end there because the New Testament, the rest of the scriptures promise us that the king is coming back. You go look at 1 Peter 5, it says, our shepherd will appear. Future tense, he will appear. And the book of Revelation describes the return of our good shepherd. Revelation 19, we've talked about it several times over the last few weeks. Follow along as I read these words. This is what happens when he comes back. The good shepherd, the king of glory, this is him. Saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron, Psalm 2. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's the King of Glory. And what the Bible is telling you is that one day he's coming back. The Good Shepherd will appear. The King will return. And there will be two responses to him on that day. The Bible describes in the book of Revelation those who do not believe in Jesus, describes them as those who dwell on the earth. The Bible says when he comes back, those who dwell on the earth will be terrified, will bow before his fury, will pray that the mountains and the rocks would fall on them and cover them up and hide them, and there will be judgment. The Bible also describes a wedding where God's people, the sheep that the good shepherd laid his life down for, will be gathered together and they'll celebrate the king of glory. And we'll sing Psalm 24. And we'll sing a new song to the one who sits on the throne. Those will be the two responses when he returns. And my challenge to you this morning is to think about if that day were today, what would your response be? Would you fall into the category of people who are praying that the rocks would fall on you to cover you? Or would you celebrate the return of the good shepherd? I pray that you would celebrate his return and I want to pray for you to that end. So let's pray. Father, we believe your word. We believe that it's true. We believe that the promises you have made, you will keep. We believe that no word will be unfulfilled. It will all come about exactly as you have planned and exactly as you have promised. Father, and I pray for the folks in this room that you would impress on their heart the reality that the king will return. He will return. Father, and I pray that on that day we would celebrate his return. 
that we would know him as our good shepherd who laid down his life for us, who provided everything that we needed and who's come back for us. Father, I pray for those in the room who have never put their trust in Jesus. They've never acknowledged their unworthiness and their uncleanness and their sin. And I pray that today you would break them over those things, that they would confess, that they would repent, and that they would run to the good shepherd. Father, we believe that you can save, that you can change hearts, that you can change lives. And so we pray that you would do that through the power of your word and the power of your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.